I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Ross Douthit. He has been an opinion columnist for the New York Times since 2009. Previously, he was a senior editor at The Atlantic. He's the author of multiple books, including The Decadent Society and Bad Religion. He is also a film critic for National Review and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Most recently, he wrote The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery, a book which we will discuss today. Ross, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. The book, I think, is relevant not just for people or patients who are dealing with chronic disease, but for physicians who treat chronic illness and disease, and for families and friends of, of people dealing with chronic illness. So really, that's everyone, I think. <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a, it's a large segment of the population. Yes. yes. Um, but for those who haven't yet read the book, can you tell us a bit about it? That is the, the story of this illness. Sure. Um, so basically, it's a story of how at what seemed like a sort of personal and professional peak um, when I was 35 years old and my wife and I, with our two daughters, were we're moving to what we intended to be our gorgeous colonial New England forever home. Um, I became very, very sick with an illness that was in the first stage while we were still living in Washington, D.C. and sort of still in the process of making the move completely mysterious. I went to doctor after doctor without getting any any kind of definitive diagnosis, um, and mostly ending up with the suggestion that I was under a lot of stress and should be seeing a psychiatrist of some sort. Um, so that was phase one. And then phase two is when we finally made the move to Connecticut. Uh, I started seeing doctors who were able to give me a pretty plausible diagnosis. They thought that I had Lyme disease, which is rather famously a disease of the Northeast, the Northeastern United States named for a small town on the Connecticut shore carried by deer ticks. Um, and it seems likely that I contracted it literally while walking through our overgrown property that we were purchasing during the house inspection. Um, but then once I had that diagnosis, then I entered into a, a different kind of mysterious landscape, which is the landscape of the controversy around Lyme disease and what you actually do if someone is sick with it, takes the CDC-approved four to six weeks of antibiotics and doesn't swiftly get better, which some percentage of Lyme patients do not. Um, and so that portion of the book and that portion of my story is about sort of ending up in the medical borderlands where a lot of people, not just people with Lyme disease, as you said, a lot of people with different kinds of chronic illnesses end up trying to find treatments for conditions that won't go away, um, but also sort of official medicine or official science doesn't doesn't have clear answers on what you should actually do about them. Yeah. And, and your symptoms were, were really variable. I mean, it was all like chest pains, if I remember correctly, leg, leg pains. Is that right? Yeah. It, I mean, it was, I had pain at, or discomfort in basically every portion of the body <laughs> that that you can have uh, discomfort in. Um, I it started the pain started in my neck, which is where I had a red mark that in hindsight was probably the tick bite. Um, so there was pain in my neck, pain in my head. And then after 
about a month, there was sort of this kind of feeling of like a full body meltdown where there was pain everywhere, this sort of feelings of tension and vibration all the time. Um, you know, my bowels didn't work. My chest was in so much pain that I would go to the ER thinking I was having heart attacks. Um, I had terrible insomnia where you would, I would fall asleep and it was like my symptoms would sort of pull me awake. You would, you know, get 10 minutes into sleep and it was like an alarm clock would go off inside your chest and you would be pulled back into consciousness. Um, so that was, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of, <laughs> it was a lot of, a lot of very strange, um, and diverse symptoms. Um, and then once I started taking antibiotics, uh, which I started doing in earnest once we were in Connecticut, um, then there was sort of a stabilization where I stopped having the heart attack type symptoms. I was able to sleep for five hours a night. Some, you know, there was sort of modest improvement, but then very quickly there was sort of a plateau. And anytime I went off the antibiotics, the uh, symptoms came, the worst symptoms came back. So, so that was, yeah, that, that was sort of the basics of what, what I was dealing with, the sort of persistent chronic migratory body pain um, that affected just about every joint and muscle group um, that I suppose I have. And it was on a, it, I mean, this was on a daily basis for, or close to a daily basis for six years, five, six years? Yes. I mean, it's been almost, it'll be seven years in the spring. Um, and I still have symptoms of various kinds. They have gotten a lot better. Um, but at so the worst, the absolute worst, I would say, lasted about two years, which was the point at which I started to find some drug combinations that seemed to help me improve. Um, but that that then became its own process that has continued really to the present day, where I, you know, you you very very slowly <laughs> get better, and it feels like you're. I mean, there are pa patients who have gone through chronic Lyme disease and done versions of the treatments that I tried to do have compared it to peeling an onion, where you're basically trying to sort of strip off layer upon layer of symptoms uh, and presumably infection um, in order to make yourself feel at least somewhat normal some of the time. And right now I would say, you know, I describe myself as 90 to 95% better on most days. Um, but that description sort of includes a, a range of, you know, still have, I still have bad afternoons. And, you know, if I get, if I get a cold or and if basically if something goes a little bit wrong, if I have an injury or an illness, some of the symptoms seem to come back. So it's as if my body has strengthened to the point where it can generally keep things pretty well in check. Um, but it hasn't sort of completely suppressed whatever is going on inside my tissue. And this, the antibiotic regimen, this was something initially prescribed by physicians. And then as you got into the internet kind of community of patients living with this, it seemed that there were a lot of adjustments that were made maybe both by you and by physicians who were maybe sort of on the outskirts of what we consider like traditional Western medicine. Yeah. I mean, there was sort of a core, there was a core thing that I did, which was 
supervised by a doctor who treats patients for chronic Lyme disease, which where, you know, you, you essentially try different antibiotics and you try different combinations of antibiotics. Uh, and one of the many theories about chronic Lyme disease, for instance, is that there are what are called co-infections, that the ticks, delightful creatures that they are, can carry more than one kind of bacteria. And so, for instance, you might have Lyme, the Lyme bacteria and something called Babesia, or you might have the Lyme bacteria and something called Bartonella. Um, there are, you know, five or six of these that are supposed to be the most common. So you you look for essentially combinations of antibiotics that can treat more than one thing at once. Um, and probably the core, the core approach that I took had, had three, one of which was for Bartonella, which I did test positive for eventually. Uh, and two others were sort of somewhat different antibiotics that were both theoretically supposed to kill Lyme disease. Um, so that, that was the core. Uh, and that was, you know, it was sort of I would describe it as sort of outsider medicine, but still traditional Western medicine, where the theory of what's happening is the traditional Western theory. You put in you put in antibiotics, and they and they kill bacteria, and at some point your immune system bounces back and figures out how to suppress the bacteria itself. Um, but then inevitably, when you're you know spending years and years trying to get better, you become very willing to try other things as well. Uh, and so there was, you know, there was sort of a wide range of things that I tried, some of which were sort of banal uh, kind of herbal supplements, these kind of things, and some of which were much stranger, um, you know, having a chiropractor put magnets all over my body or um, using a machine that generates uh, audio frequencies that are alleged to disrupt or somehow shatter bacteria, uh, much the way like uh, an opera singer's note can at the right pitch can shatter shatter a glass. That's the theory, and you know this stuff is very much. Um, I don't know if you'd say it's not Western science. It's fair. I mean, it's quite Western in a way, but it's certainly not mainstream science. I think is <laughs> is fair, and and it has no, um, it you know it it has no sort of sustained and rigorous evidence behind it. It has you know a lot of it has some theory. It has a lot of anecdotes. You can find some papers here and there that sort of touch on this stuff. Um, it's not completely evidence free, but it's the sort of stuff that is, you know, very easily dismissed as pseudoscience. Um, and, you know, for, for understandable reasons, I'm not making any radical claims for it, except, except the claim that it did seem to work for me. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, in the initial stages of, of trying to figure out what was going on, because as I was reading the story, I felt a pang of familiarity with kind of some of the reactions that physicians um, had towards what was going on. So throughout the book, you hint at some of the problems with your interactions on an individual level with physicians. So it, you write about emergency room doctors that they talked sympathetically to me and skeptically to one another. And, and of, then of, of one gastroenterologist, he greeted me with some puzzlement. Still, he listened to my story, seemed to accept my basic reasonability. And in some response to this or anticipating the skepticism of physicians, you write, I had already figured out that when you're claiming symptoms that don't show up on blood tests, it's a good idea to exaggerate your own good sense and self-awareness. 
to keep a smooth veneer over the bubbling, help me please hysteria underneath. I felt this was like a little bit tragic that this is kind of what patients um, have to do in order to be taken seriously in some way. So can you speak in, in a bit more detail about what these physician visits were like, how some of this skepticism percolated to the surface in your interactions with them, and, and maybe how that affected your own sense of your illness? Sure. I mean, I, you know, and I, I want to say that first, I, I wouldn't say that I had terrible interpersonal, you know, sort of interactions with doctors. In general, they were very sympathetic. Uh, in general, you know, they were kind, they could see that I was, you know, suffering and having that, you know, that some that something was going on. Um, but there is a sort of default there's i mean i i think that doctors are trained in a few different ways right there there's part of doctor's training is to be essentially to trust you know to trust what seems like the empirical reality over just simple patient testimony right so if a patient is describing a set of things and as in the quote you read they don't show up on blood tests um or in my case, I later figured out they don't show up on blood tests in a way that meets the official CDC criteria, right? Because you, you would, I, I basically would have these these blood tests, these positive, these negative tests for Lyme disease that were always like almost a positive test, but not quite, right? Um, so yeah, so there's sort of training to say, well, you know, what is re- what is reliable are the tests, and what is you know, potentially unreliable is the patient testimony. And the more outlandish the patient patient testimony, the, the less likely it is to be sort of compelling data to make a to make a sort of physical diagnosis, right? Um, and, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a term um, that uh, Megan O'Rourke, who has written her own book about chronic illness. Uh, she's the editor of the Yale Review. Her book is coming out in the spring. She says that doctors refer to heart, heart sink patients, patients where they start talking and as a physician, your heart sinks <laughs> because what they're presenting you with is sort of something that seems impossible to reasonably diagnose. It's just some sort of incredibly long personal story, some sort of incredibly diverse array of symptoms that don't map onto any sort of normal box checking diagnosis. Um, And, you know, the system is just not well set up to help people in those positions. And, you know, another reason it's not well set up is that medicine has and for good reason, sort of specialized around particular illnesses, but also particular um, systems within the body, right? So if, you know, when I, when my, when my chest hurt, I went to a cardiologist. When I had problems in my bowels, I went to the gastroenterologist. When I had prickling in my extremities, I went to a neurologist. And all of these doctors are trained in their particular specialty. But if you have what turns out to be some kind of systemic problem, then that specialization, I think, makes it harder for the doctors to sort of, you know, sort of see possibilities that are outside their range, you know, their sort of specialized systems-based range. 
Um, and and then generally, I mean, I I would say my my core frustration with medicine was was this right, which is that maybe appropriate for the title of the podcast in certain ways, right? But like one of the things that you, I I'm a religious person, right? So I I write about you know spiritual debates and theological questions and all these kinds of things. And one of the things you sort of take for granted is that the medical system, whatever else it is, is very materially grounded, I mean, you know, to a fault, right? That's sort of the assumption of the religious person. It's like, oh, you know, doctors, they think they think science can explain absolutely everything. And that sort of is a limit on their on their horizons. But in fact, when you come into the medical system with a mysterious, a mysterious illness, <laughs> the default of a lot of doctors is not to, you know, sort of hard grounded materialism. It's to this kind of, you know, mind body mysterianism where they'll say, well, you know, we're not sure what's wrong with you, Ross, but you know, the mind and the body, they interact in a lot of strange ways. We're not really sure what's going on here. Um, it's a mystery. And I'd be like, well, wait, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm here. I, I want the materialism, right? I want the, I want the intensely physically grounded, you know, I have pain in my extremity. Here's the physical cause. That's the medicine I want. And I, I was sort of surprised that that was the most surprising thing. I thought how for things that aren't quite in, you know, sort of fully integrated into the system of conventional diagnoses, there's this default to mystery this sort of this that that I yeah that you know as a patient is kind of exasperating when you're looking for when you're looking for a harder a harder answer. We use that I think as a as you indicate as a crutch in a way where we don't know what's going on because it's a it's an easy explanation to reach for, and and to be fair, there are instances in medicine where that is the case. I think particularly of. Um, non-epileptic seizures, which used to be called uh, pseudo-seizures or psychogenic seizures. And so there are patients with epilepsy who have clearly have electrical discharges within the brain and they develop seizures. And then there are patients, and this was identified very um, early on in modern medicine, who act as if they have seizures, but there actually is no electrical discharge. And so um, I think it was Charcot who identified this, and it was some administrative mistake. It was at the Salpetriere Hospital in France, where patients with seizures were in the same ward as patients with you know, emotional disturbances. And so the, the patients with emotional disturbances would um, imitate a lot of these patients with seizures, and the more attention they got, the kind of stranger and more bizarre these seizures seemed to be. And when the attention was taken away, which this was identified by one of Charcot's students, the fewer seizures there were. Now, I'm not saying that's a kind of a rule with non-epileptic seizures, but there was a kind of sense that the mind can do some pretty wild things, but those are exceptionally rare circumstances. It's just that I think physicians have a temptation to reach for that explanation because it's, it's easy in a way. Well, and it's, I mean, look, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, among other things, done a fair amount of reading on psychogenic illness, right, in, <laughs> in the course, in the, in the course of, of this kind of experience. And I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is, there is clearly, there are clearly illnesses that 
reflect some as yet poorly understood way that mental states influence physical reality um, without, you know, certainly without some kind of clear cut pathogen or something. Right. And I mean, we're having this sort of fascinating argument in public right now about so-called Havana syndrome, Mm. uh, where, you know, it's sort of the reverse of the normal chronic illness experience where, you know, people in in embassies in hostile countries report, you know, these terrible symptoms, headaches and and, you know, sort of crippling, crippling conditions, basically. Um, and they, and immediate, in, you know, the, what seemed to me like the default of the medical system to sort of say, you know, well, if this is mysterious, it must be psychogenic. In this case, the, it was like, well, it's obviously the Russians <laughs> using, <laughs> using some sort of energy technology to inflict brain damage. It, it was sort of a leap to, what seems to people outside outside that system like the most fanciful explanation, um, which has been itself sort of fascinating to watch. But that, but I mean, my my general sense of this is that you know, and it's 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 hard to say because you don't actually have incredibly good data on you know the. I mean, one one of the problems with psychogenic illness as a diagnosis, right, is that it's it's often then sort of becomes this kind of default where it's like, well, you have a psychogenic illness and therefore here too, there's nothing we can do for you, right? <laughs> but in fact, you know, in fact, there are doctors who treat like, you know, people who have who have these sort of psychogenic conditions where they feel like they can't move their arms, right, or something. And you, mm-hmm. you actually have to do some sort of incredibly complicated treatment protocol in order to get them to move their arms. Um, but psychogenic illness can be treated too. Yes. It's just we've only barely begun <laughs> to figure out to figure out how it might be treated. Um, but with these sort of broad-based chronic conditions, which, you know, I think given the numbers involved, chronic Lyme certainly falls into that category. Chronic fatigue syndrome certainly does. You're you're dealing like the as as I understand it, the classic psychogenic presentations are in sort of these enclosed communities under conditions of sort of distinctive psychological stress, right? It's like, you know, the girls in the Salem witch trial sort of falling asleep for, you know, days on end, mm-hmm. or the patient, maybe the patients in the psychiatric ward imitating, imitating epileptics. Um, and, you know, when you're dealing with tens of thousands of cases of, you know, with chronic fatigue syndrome sort of spread out over decades over a vast geographical span and totally different cultural and familial backgrounds and case histories and everything else. My, my sense is that the psycho, the psychogenic explanations for these, for those kind of things tend to, well, I mean, honestly, my sense, and you can tell me if you think this is wrong, but my sense is that in general, like the people who you know, the people who really study chronic fatigue syndrome don't think it's primarily psychogenic, right? Like that's mm-hmm. sort of not, that's not where chronic fatigue syndrome has, has ended up. Um, but it's more people who have sort of a casual acquaintance with these debates. And with chronic Lyme disease, the people, there are people who don't agree with the, anabo- you know, the long-term antibiotic treatment regimen, whose view is that chronic Lyme disease is, um, is, um, an autoimmune condition, right? That it's, you have an infection, it triggers your immune system in some way. And so you sort of remain sick 
long after the primary infection has gone. Um, and that, again, sort of when you're close to the data and the literature on Lyme disease, that seems to be the the alternate explanation that's offered for what people like me have gone through. But once you get a little further from the data, then you get people saying, oh, everyone in New England thinks they have chronic Lyme disease. It's, you know, it's a it's a cultural affliction of the Northeast, right? Which I just think is fundamentally pretty implausible. I mean, mm. I think there are other reasons it's implausible, but I don't um, I don't think it fits with the really good case studies we have of psychogenic illness. Sure. I I also think that with chronic Lyme, where the symptoms seem, I'm not, certainly not no expert in it, but the symptoms seem to be so diverse that physicians may feel that it's hard because creating criteria for it and then criteria for improvement, which must themselves, I think, be strict in order to yield productive or actionable results in large studies. Because as you mentioned in the book, really randomized controlled trials are sort of the holy grail or the highest level of evidence in medicine. And while case studies and retrospective data point us in one direction or another, they're not definitive. And that's our that's a result of our rigid kind of upbringing in medicine, I think. Well, no, and, and there are excellent reasons for that too, right? right. And it's, it's just in this case, I mean, if, if you look at my own you know, my book is sort of a case history, right? And I, I think I, I say this at some point in the book that it's it's really hard as someone who personally experienced this to imagine how you would design a, you know, a, a controlled trial that imitated the, you know, extremely long-term, you know, inch by inch grueling and incredibly complicated way that I, that I actually got better, right? Um, and that's, true i mean i think that's the core weakness for the doctors who believe this is real and are trying to treat it is that they don't have a you know the one drug the one drug magic bullet to offer um they have a lot of evidence from animal studies especially that lyme disease does in fact persist after antibiotic treatment i think the the evidence for that is quite strong at this point but they don't have you know the six weeks and you're better alternative cure basically to what the establishment offers. And I think that's where, you know, it's really hard to get a paradigm shift if the people urging the paradigm shift are saying, you know, embrace our paradigm shift. And when you have a patient who has chronic Lyme disease, you're going to have to spend three years with them trying seven different antibiotics. Like that's, that's not, the system is not well set up, I think for that, for that kind of potential answer to to a uh, to a problem with that said though you know i i do feel like there's probably a middle ground here where you know the right now lots of people who get treated for chronic lyme disease take antibiotics for years in order to get better and the studies that are used th there are three or four studies a couple by the NIH and a couple others that are used to say look, long-term antibiotics don't, you know, people who do long-term antibiotics don't show improvement. Therefore, you shouldn't give antibiotics long-term. Most of these are like, we gave people antibiotics for 12 weeks instead of six weeks. And mm -hmm. they showed a little improvement in fatigue, but not enough to, ju to justify it. And it's like, well, 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, I took antibiotics for 12 weeks <laughs> and I did not, I didn't see any improve, any measurable improvement doing 12 weeks instead of six weeks. I did see, you know, dramatic, dramatic improvement taking antibiotics over a much longer period of time. It, so it seems like you would, you could run some studies that ran, you know, at least like four months. Right. And I, I mean, I know that they're here too. There's just a sort of deep, a deep fear of over over prescribing antibiotics which is also part of this whole story right that sort of the, there's an understandable medical default against over prescription um but everything that i have both experienced and read and seen suggests that if you were designing even the most basic controlled trial for quote unquote long term antibiotic treatment you would have to run it for longer than the ones that we've had to date i i also think it's a financial issue too because these trials are so expensive to run um, and there, there's so much overhead involved with them that there probably is reluctance based around financial concerns too, to, to yes. push, push it out. Yes. And this is the other difficulty, right? Is that the drugs, like there isn't some huge financial payoff because the drugs that are being used are not, the drugs themselves are not particularly expensive. I mean, the the people who do intravenous antibiotics, that's obviously quite expensive. But if it turned out that, you know, in order to treat most cases of chronic Lyme disease, you need a three drug cocktail of rifampin and doxycycline and something else, right? No one would get rich off discovering that. Right. Because <laughs> yes. those, those drugs are very normal, banal, um, and relatively inexpensive drugs. If someone could find you know, the one, the one pill, then there would be lots and lots of Lyme, chronic Lyme disease patients who would happily pay a ton of money for it. But the drugs that are sort of in play right now are not potentially huge money makers. Yes, exactly. I also, you know, when I think about um, patients who come in to me in pain or come to other physicians in pain, there's a weird kind of thing that we have about patients in pain. And it, it has to do with the fact that I think the opioid epidemic has made us all incredibly wary about prescribing opioids, almost too worried or concerned about whether patient in pain will become an addict. And this means I think there's much more cynicism about pain uh, amongst physicians, such that if someone comes to you in pain and has other symptoms as well, it's easier to kind of brush it aside, like, oh, they're just kind of seeking pain medication. And I'm not indicating that that's what, you know, you were kind of... Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, like, I didn't get a lot of relief from the pain medication I tried. So I yeah. never, I was seeking antibiotics. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> hit me, hit me with the doxycycline, man. And, right. you know, no one, there isn't strong literature that people get addicted to doxycycline. So I don't, whatever else my physicians were worried about, they won't worry, weren't worried about that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, no, that's clearly part of the general, the general story here, right? That there's sort of, we had, we have a lot of chronic pain in American society for reasons that are, I think, you know, still not, still not well understood. Um, we sort of developed a really powerful treatment for it and it turned into a horrible social nightmare. <laughs> and so <laughs> yes. what, what, you know, you, I mean, and, and yeah, and then physicians are sort of left in a really difficult position. But I do think, again, sort of not to be 
too critical. But yeah, in that, I, I think you're describing this kind of, you know, this sort of, in a way, this kind of intellectual defense mechanism, where if you don't know how to help a patient, it's easy to tell yourself, you know, well, they're, you know, they're just sort of doctor shopping. I can't help them, but no one can help them. Right. That I think is a very sort of understandable psychological default. And going back, I guess, to the antibiotic question, I probably should have uh, mentioned this earlier. There's, I think, amongst physicians, a real fear of legal um, action. And, you know, we feel often that we need to protect ourselves. So we're as conservative, and many, many physicians are as conservative as possible. So I've not yet been the subject of a lawsuit, but in all likelihood, no matter how good I am or become, I'll probably be a defendant at some point or be named at least at some point. And the cases can drag on for years. You know, they're permanent stains on your record. So anytime you renew your license with a state, you actually have to kind of explain what happened and all that. So they're pretty traumatic, I think, to go through as others have have yes. warned me. Um, yeah, and you see, yeah. and you see this with the you know the doctors who do treat chronic Lyme patients become you know they they often get in trouble basically get in legal trouble of various kinds um, and sometimes it's patients and sometimes it's just sort of their critics trying to take them before the state medical board um, and I don't want you know my I, I did intravenous antibiotics for about three months. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is the, the, the place where I think, you know, the skeptics of long-term Lyme treatment have the strongest case that, you know, intravenous treatment is risky. It's not just risky because of the antibiotic itself. It's risky because you're, you know, putting a needle in someone's arm. There's all kinds of, you know, risks of infection and various things. Um, and you know, there, so there are, good reasons beyond just sort of a general caution to worry about the ways in which um, people try and treat these conditions. I think, you know, one thing I'm trying to do in the book is explain sort of from the patient's perspective, like why your own risk reward balance changes so radically. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you had told me before I got sick that, you know, oh, you'll you'll get sick and you know you'll you'll be sick for 9 months or a year and you'll be willing to put yourself in the hands of a doctor under investigation <laughs> you know by a state <laughs> medical board who is charging you thousands of dollars to inject you with a you know a high dose antibiotic every day i would have said no i probably am not going to do that right? Um, <laughs> right and you don't what what i think is is hard for everyone on the outside to understand is just how totally destructive uh, these these kind of like these kind at their worst, these kind of chronic conditions can be where, you know, where, you know, if you just sort of describe the symptoms, if you say, okay, I have a headache, I have headaches, or I have, you know, pain in my extremities, or, you know, you can make a description of the symptoms that sounds to a lot of people like it's just a little worse than what, you know, everyone normally has, like everyone gets headaches, everyone has some insomnia, everyone is tired, right? Um, and if there's any, if there's not, if nothing, if I leave the reader with nothing else, I want to leave them with the sense that it's not just like what everyone goes through, but a little worse. It is in fact, like a life destroying experience that is so bad, 
that you are willing to, I mean, literally you're willing to try anything because the sort of the promise of, you know, we'll wait and see and in six months to a year you'll get better is it basically feels like a war you're signing your living death warrant. Um, and that, that I think, I think doctors get that at some level, but I think it would be just in terms of sort of generating sympathy for patients who come to you and say, Hey doctor, here are the 16 crazy things I've tried, <laughs> right? Like understanding why they've tried those crazy things, I think would be, would be useful. Yes. Did you ever feel rushed at these visits like time was sort of like they were trying to sort of push push you out or uh they just didn't have the time to spend speaking to you to some extent yes although not i mean in general that wasn't the problem it the problem was you know they it didn't matter like i could have spent 45 minutes listing symptoms but it was clear within the first 10 minutes that they could look at my blood work. I hadn't yet tested positive for anything. And I was describing a range of symptoms that didn't fit any to them. These were the doctors in Washington, unlike the doctors in Connecticut who saw a lot more Lyme disease. They they just didn't recognize anything in these weird patterns of symptoms. So I, I'm not sure for a lot of those doctors that, you know, an extra half hour or 45 minutes, it might have made me feel better to talk about it, right? right? Like there are, there is some benefit in that. Uh, and you do appreciate the doctors who seem to listen. Um, but in terms of like getting closer to what was wrong with me, I'm not, I'm not sure I did, you know, the, the one that was sort of most depressing at the time was I had try, I had, you know, done everything I could to get the appointment with like the highest muckety muck in infectious diseases <laughs> at the most important DC hospital. And that, that appointment, it was like five minutes. It was, you know, it was like you, you know, we're not seeing anything on your blood work. Um, you know, uh, here's a referral to a psychiatrist. Thanks for coming. Um, that, that one was, yeah, that, that was, <laughs> that was, di that was dispiriting, but also, you know, it, I mean, these, that was the one that actually made me go see the psychiatrist, which was helpful. It was good to go see psychiatrists because it was helpful to have them say, I don't think this is a psychiatric illness, Ross, like, which was the, the two psychiatrists I saw one in DC and one in Connecticut, both said that they thought I had a physical illness, which was helpful in helping me remain convinced that I had a physical illness. Yeah, psychiatry um, is actually really helpful in instances where you're not quite sure what's going on and you think maybe there's some uh, psychological component because they are very good at being as grounded as possible and thinking through things very carefully. So, you know, there is this sense of rush um, patient encounters a lot in medicine. And so, if, okay, it doesn't fit this, uh, send to psychiatry. And psychiatry will say, well, hold on a second. Uh, maybe you need to do some more investigation. And, and frankly, oftentimes that will force the rest of us to kind of be more careful or more thorough in, in the things that we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I... I have known chronic Lyme patients who've had not so good experiences with psychiatrists where they mm. felt like they just sort of had, you know, a default to take an antidepressant for six months and, you know, get back to me. Right. Um, but my own experiences were, were generally very positive, including 
you know, one of the people who I found most helpful in Lyme research was um, a psychiatrist who had started out treating patients who had had Lyme disease for what he thought were just sort of the psychiatric after effects of Lyme. And at a certain point, he sort of changed his career and research interests because he realized or decided that whatever was happening with these patients was just clearly not simply psychiatric. Um, so that's, you know, that too is sort of an interesting, an interesting case study. And you discuss in the book a bit about the medical establishment in general, because you've had these individual interactions and sort of had to kind of figure things out, um, doing your own research and seeing physicians maybe on the outskirts of medicine. So how have you come to think about the medical establishment after this experience? And particularly during the pandemic, when there's so much <laughs> distrust in public health authorities and and physicians, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen in the pandemic, the, the core problem is the system wants to, it, it fears acknowledging its own fallibility because it fears sort of that any such acknowledgement just lets all the quacks, you know, come rushing in, right? And that's... You know, that's an understandable fear. And there, God help us, there's been tons of quackery around COVID. Um, but the problem with, I mean, the problems with COVID and Lyme are sort of overlapping, dis distinct, but have some similarities. The problem with COVID, right, is that it's a new disease. Like there's just, you know, there's no way to generate incredibly high levels of certainty at the at the outset about all kinds of things, whether, you know, it's transmission, it's, you know, it, it's, um, you know, what kind of what kind of um, non pharmaceutical interventions work, you know, what kind of drugs might work as sort of stop gaps for for treatment early on. Um, and, and this so there's just been this pattern, I think, throughout the pandemic, where, you know, medical authorities want to give the appearance of, you know, of, of a certainty that they don't really have. And then when they have to sort of walk things back or change recommendations, then people who are primed to be suspicious already sort of become really skeptical. They say, well, you're saying this now, but you said something else four months ago. Um, and I mean, that's how real science works, right? It does, it evolves <laughs> in response to information. But the idea that like all you had to do at the beginning was capital T trust the science just wasn't reflective of, of that kind of dynamic, ever-changing, ongoing process in response to something new and complicated. Um, and with, with chronic illness, it's it's not new. It's sort of it's problems that tend to sneak up on society gradually. But what's similar is just, you know, I mean, you the system doesn't know how to treat these conditions, right? And so there has to be some acknowledgement of that uncertainty. And I do think more acknowledgement of that uncertainty would be helpful to patients because they would understand that, you know, you actually have to experiment. Like you, you can't just sort of, you can't just sort of sit and wait to get better because lots of people don't. You, ha you have to experiment. And I think it would help doctors in certain ways. I, I think that, again, like the average overstressed, overworked general practitioner is probably not going to be the person who guides the chronically ill person through their multi-year recovery, right? Like that's not going to happen. But for that overstressed doctor to be able to say, 
look, the CDC has some recommendations here, but we all know that, you know, they aren't really sufficient to what's going on. And you probably need to, you know, see someone who specializes in this. That would be really helpful. That, that, that I think a lot of people would benefit from that, that kind of attitude in doctors who are on the front lines and who aren't going to be like the Sherpa taking you through your longer treatment process. In medicine, it is there, I would say most of the time, there isn't really good data to guide the things that we do, which, uh, you know, speaking with Dr. <laughs> That's Dr. not, yeah, that is not the impression <laughs> right. that, that, that doctors are trained to give to their patients. Exactly. Yes. I can't believe I'm saying this on a medicine podcast, but um, yes, I was speaking with Dr. Kristen Collier a couple of weeks ago, and we, we were talking a little bit about this, that you know, there is data to, to guide lots of decisions, but I would say a majority of the time it, it's, there's, it's anecdotal or it's kind of, you think through some basic signs that you had learned in med school or uh, patients you had seen in med school or residency, and you try and extrapolate from that. And I, I agree with you. I think it would be better if doctors were a little more cautious about their certainty in, in their interactions with patients and said, like, I don't know for sure, but here's what I think. And here's why I think that. And I just think it would be a little more, I don't want to say honest, because I don't think doctors are being dishonest in any way. I just think be more helpful for patients. Yeah. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about family and friends, because I think one of the most important discussions in the book is about how those who live and break bread with you react to your illness uh, and the role of friends and family in, an, in a chronic illness. I think this applies not only to illness, but any drawn out tragedy that humans face in life. And there's a, there's a passage in the book about this. Uh, you write, it's not clear what the healthy person is supposed to give to a friend or a family member who isn't dying who doesn't have some need that you can fill with a discreet act of generosity, who just has the same problems. Terrible, but also, let's be frank, a little boring, day after depressing day. So when we speak of, of chronic illness, what is it that is most up, uplifting for those who are suffering? What was it that was most helpful to you? And what role ought a friend or family member play in this situation? I mean, I think that the challenge is... In certain ways, the biggest challenge is that there there are situations where you can be helpful, and there are patients who have chronic illnesses who really need like overt help, like you know people who can't drive who need to be driven to doctor's appointments, people who you know have brain fog so they can't you know they can't read things on the internet and they need people to do research for them effectively right so there there's sort of a range of things that people at their worst need, but people who are sort of one standard deviation better, like well enough to sort of guide their own treatment, but not actually well there. I think it's, you know, it's primarily a question of listening and a kind of, you know, a sort of, a sort of emotional support, but almost being like a reservoir into which the sick person can sort of, pour a little bit of the boiling unhappiness that they feel all the time. And so the challenge there is that, you know, you, you, 
the people who are closest to you just get overwhelmed by that. And, you know, in my case, I was sort of, we were trapped in this house, this dream house that had become a nightmare, me and my wife and our two small children. And my wife was pregnant. So then we had a third small child. And she was just, you know, at a certain point, you know, the reservoir was full, right? Like she could not sort of, there there are just limits to how much of my emotional struggle I could pour into her. And so I think for people who are, for people who are really, really close to someone with chronic illness, sometimes the most important thing is to figure out how to like get yourself a break or a little bit of distance, right? That like if you are the spouse or the parent or the partner or, you know, you're, you're in sort of intimate life with someone this sick, you need to be able to lift your head out sometimes or you yourself will be sort of, will become so unhappy that you won't be helpful to the sick person anymore. Um, and then the people in the next circle, I think, the obligation is to figure out how to do a little more in a way that relieves the people who are absolutely closest. <laughs> so figuring out how to be sort of occasionally present in the life of a friend who's been sick for a long time, meaning, you know, if you're a friend who lives far away, figuring out how to visit, you know, once more than you otherwise would in a given year. If you're a sibling who lives, you know, who lives two hours away, figuring out how to call a little more often. So that that I think like if I if I were sort of personally in charge of, you know, giving advice to like a network of people surrounding a sick person, that's what I'd say that when you're really close, you need to make sure you're not too close and you need some sort of ways to get distance. And when you're a little further away, you need ways to give a little bit more in order to, you know, both to help the sick person themselves, but also help spell and relieve the people who are dealing with it every single day. During your first year uh, of sickness, you described the internet as a source of misery with all those happy facades on social media. Um, it, I, I really like the way you put this as a world of surfaces and curated cells that lied to its inhabitants. And we know now from a lot of the um, psychiatric literature that social media use is linked to depression particularly in young women, but it's true. It seems to be true, at least um, so far, to people of all ages and um, walks of life. So how has this experience changed the way in which you interact or don't interact with social media? And how has it changed the way you want to approach conversations about social media use with your children? I mean, I wish I could say that it has radically changed <laughs> my relationship to social media. Um, but it probably has not. I mean, I, I, I had, you know, I had, I've always had a relatively disciplined approach to social media. I only really use Twitter. Um, I don't use Facebook that much or really at all. Um, and I sort of have this kind of controlled approach where I, you know, I have people I follow and I read those people. And I communicate with those people and I don't sort of read all my mentions or go searching, you know, searching through the wilds of Twitter, um, really in any, in any sustained way. Um, but I sort of had that approach before I got, I got sick. So I don't know if there's been that big a change. Uh, I would say it's confirmed my sense that 
kids should be protected <laughs> from social media for as long as humanly possible. Um, and our kids are, you know, young enough that that has been possible. They probably watch more movies than is good for them, but they are not online in any way. Um, but you'd have to ask me again in like five or six years <laughs> about, you know, how, how that has actually gone in their, in their adolescence. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the internet, What's what makes this so complicated is that the internet helped me tremendously in terms of figuring out how to actually get better. Um, social media didn't help me tremendously, but the internet, it's as a larger entity, a place where, you know, a Lyme disease doctor in Seattle, Washington posts their protocols, their like treatment approaches and says, here's what I do if, if, you know, if patients do this, here's what I do if they have a test for that co-infection, like just things like that are all there. Um, this, and, you know, communities of people talking about different treatments, all, all of that I think is a real gift to the chronically ill. And that didn't exist 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so I guess part of it has sharpened my sense that the internet and social media are not the same thing. And if we spent more time on the internet and less time on social media, maybe the world would look more like what the, the internet optimists used to think it would look like instead of what it's ended up looking like. Um, but, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't managed to radically overhaul social media. I mean, there's also a way in which when you're not feeling well physically, it is the drug-like quality of it, the, you know, the, the little hit you get when you get an email or, you know, refresh or something. I mean, that, that is sort of a useful, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it can be a useful pain management technique. It's like you distract yourself a little bit with, with that. Um, and there's the part of the part of me that, you know, wants to be completely free of, of social media, um, recognizes that I have used it maybe, you know, maybe in helpful ways, um, for those purposes over the last seven years too. My last question for you is, um, it digs a little bit deeper because I noticed when you wrote about your initial reaction to the illness, that there was a sense of a nagging reminder of your own mortality. So just a, a quote from the book, I had been an adult in the world for 17 years, and with a few exceptions, my body had done everything I asked of it without complaint. Having that same body betray me somehow, no, that was unimaginable. If I had crossed the border into illness, it had to be temporary. It was a mistake, an accident, a passport problem, and I simply had to find the quickest way back out. So it seems here that you're grappling not just with the illness itself, but but the, a reminder of your own end. Is that right? Did you, did you think about that? And what did it feel like to be reminded at such a young age of mortality? I mean, I think it's, if you can make a distinction between mortality itself and decay, <laughs> I think, I think I, I, I don't think so that, you know, the moments in the illness when like I, had, you know, incredibly intense chest pain and was going to the hospital and was like literally worried about imminently dying of some heart attack that fortunately I wasn't happening, having. In those moments, what I was, I was not afraid of death so much as I was afraid of failing my children, 
you know, leaving, leaving them alone or something like that. Right. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that the illness sort of either heightened my, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think it changed my relationship to death aging on the other hand it did it does feel it did feel and does feel like i basically sort of hit the fast forward button on certain universal experiences of your body sort of not working and and betraying you um and you know one of my what it's interesting to sort of think about things now you know this started when i was 35 i'm now 42 and you know i i will sometimes say to myself or to other people, like I'm 90% better and I want to get to a hundred percent better before I start the real process <laughs> of decay. That's, you know, that's, that's waiting for me around the corner. And I think of course, what will inevitably happen is that, you know, my sort of, there won't be some clear line, right? Like hopefully I will continue to get better from this illness. And then, you know, my, aging 40 something and 50 something body will begin to break down in other ways. And the, the one, the, the experience of chronic illness will just sort of blur <laughs> into the general experience of aging. Um, but, but no, I, I mean, it does, it does feel like a sort of a kind of acceleration basically of the universal human experience where, you know, a lot of the people I talked to who had, who, who had sort of pain of various kinds that wasn't Lyme disease. But you know, when you're sick like this, you people open up, you open up, you talk more, <laughs> you lose your filter, and people you talk to open up more. So I learned a lot more about what like my random journalistic peers go through in terms of pain and suffering. Um, and there just seemed to be a lot of a lot of men, especially between the ages of 45 and 60, who had really sort of intense but somewhat secret stories to tell. So the, it was sort of like I had leaped ahead 10 or 15 years in that, in that life trajectory, um, you know, which is sad. I mean, I would have liked to, <laughs> would have liked to experience my later 30s with a, you know, with, with, a, with the body that I had experienced my early 30s with. But um, that was not to be. On that note, Ross, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for having me. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn about our programs, events, podcasts, and more.